Stress is something that can come suddenly in life and can vary in intensity and duration. Uh, One of my daughters sent me a clip this week someone had posted on Instagram. I guess um, the pool in the backyard, don't play that yet, and the the above ground pool and four kids, always a lively place with four active kids. And um, before you see this, I didn't notice... Some of the people practicing before the service noticed the beer pong game. That was not in my backyard. (laughs) And I didn't know what that was. But anyway, um, so I was asked if I wanted to use it. I said, yeah, we'll we'll use it. It frightens me that other people knew what it was. Uh, (laughs) But um, here's, uh, here's how stress can hit you someday. And let me see what you have. No! And let me see what you have. No! what he said, but she said, let me see what you have. He said, a knife. And she says, no. I remember those times as a parent. And that's stress all of a sudden, right, when something happens in the life of your kid. We had a lot of those times around my house with little kids. And stress can be found in life's daily pressures. Stress can be of long duration as we deal with certain problems in life that worsen over time, like deteriorating health or dealing with a family member who's off the rails and, uh, and wreaking havoc on everyone around them. In the world, we find all kinds of advice and strategies about handling stress. The Internet's filled with advice, supplements, exercises, retreats, to handle stress is a multi-billion dollar industry. In the first message, I noted that Hillary Clinton has related to CNN how she's been handling the stress from the loss of the presidential election. She said, quote, I relied on prayer, yoga, and my fair share of Chardonnay or white wine. She's added something else that came up in the media this week that uh, she also says she's been doing uh, alternate nostril breathing exercises where you inhale in one nostril and exhale out the other, which is a a yoga uh, practice. The question I'm seeking to answer, though, is this. Is there something unique to how Christians should process and deal with stress? Is there something or some things that set us apart? And if so, how do we go about implementing this approach into everyday life? And so today, we'll seek to further answer this question and to build upon what we began in the first message. Some of these messages, like today, think about stacking one Lego block on top of the other. We've laid one foundation, stacking a little block on it today in an abbreviated way as we come to the table. But I think it's an important next step that we need to think about in relationship to how we are going to deal with stress differently than the world. So I want you to turn in your Bibles with me to two places. One to Joshua chapter 4, and then to Luke chapter 22. And in the background of all of this as well will be 1 Corinthians eleven twenty-three through 26, the text we'll read when we come to the Lord's table in just a bit. Joshua 4, 1 through 7. The scripture says, when the whole nation had finished crossing the Jordan. So this is the time when Israel is coming into the promised land. They've been wandering in the wilderness 40 years. Moses has died. Joshua is now the leader. They're crossing the Jordan. 
The Lord said to Joshua, choose 12 men from among the people, one from each tribe, and tell them to take up 12 stones from the middle of the Jordan, from right where the priests are standing, and carry them over with you, and put them down at the place where you stay tonight. So he does that, and um, they take these 12 stones, they set them up to serve as a sign among you. And twice he repeats what we read in verse 6, if you'll skip on down to verses 19 through 24 for time's sake. It says, on the tenth day of the first month, the people went up from the Jordan and camped at Gilgal on the eastern border of Jericho. And Joshua set up at Gilgal the twelve stones they had taken out of the Jordan. He said to the Israelites, in the future when your descendants ask their parents, what do these stones mean? Tell them Israel crossed the Jordan on dry ground, for the Lord your God dried up the Jordan before you until you had crossed over. The Lord your God did to the Jordan what he had done to the Red Sea when he dried it up before us until we had crossed over. He did this so that all the peoples of the earth might know that the hand of the Lord is powerful and so that you might always fear the Lord your God. And then in the Gospel of Luke chapter 22, we come to Jesus right before his arrest, right before we come to what happens here. And the Bible says, Jesus went out as usual to the Mount of Olives, and his disciples followed him. On reaching the place, he said to them, pray that you will not fall into temptation. He withdrew about a stone's throw beyond them, knelt down and prayed, Father, if you're willing, take this cup from me, yet not my will, but yours be done. An angel from heaven appeared to him and strengthened him. And being in anguish, he prayed more earnestly. And his sweat was like drops of blood falling to the ground. When he rose from prayer and went back to the disciples, he found them asleep, exhausted from sorrow. Why are you sleeping? He asked them. Get up and pray so that you will not fall into temptation. In a few moments, we're going to uncover this table and see the elements and participate in the Lord's Supper. And of course, this action which Jesus commanded from us, his followers, recounts before our eyes the death of Jesus on the cross. And he tells us to do this in remembrance of him. In the passage in 1 Corinthians 11, we hear twice in remembrance of him we are to do this. No one has ever gone through the level of stress Jesus faced and what took place when he died as the sin bearer of the world of, uh, sin bearer of, the world of humanity. We get a bit of the feel of the stress he was under, though, in that passage in Luke as he is in the garden shortly before his arrest. He was under crushing stress, such strain that his his sweat turned to drops of blood. And it was stress related to a trial he was going to have to face that was not going to be short-circuited. He was going to have to go through this. It was part of God's plan. And so this stress led into a great act that you and I are called to remember today, as the Jews on a lesser scale of importance were called to remember the stones set up by the water in relationship to their crossing the Jordan. Now, within these two events, we find something more in relationship to the unique ways followers of Jesus, the true God of Scripture, should handle stress in this world. Now, there's no way that we can cover all aspects of this in one message. So again, we're building upon it week in and week out. And so I encourage you, if you miss a week, go back and listen to it on the internet. And we'll build this out over time, a unique Christian perspective to dealing with stress. 
But before we delve into what I want to say today, I do want to kind of just recap a little bit of what we did say in the first message two weeks ago, and we were in Romans chapter 5, beginning in verse 1. I'm not going to go back and read the text, but if you're not here, you can go back and read it later. You recall in that first message, we talked about stress and began to argue that Christians have a unique way of dealing with stress. We began with the idea that you and I have this unique perspective of where we now stand with God. We have an inner peace related to a, a forensic, a real peace that has been purchased for us in the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus. You see, inner peace is never really known by anybody until he or she is at peace with God. And the only way you can ever really know that you're at peace with God is through the unique message of the gospel. New Testament scholar Douglas Moo said, people who search for peace will never find it until they find peace with God. And you notice in Romans 5, 1, Paul says, therefore, since we have been justified through faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. And so for us, the beginning perspective is that I am a person who is at peace with God. God has declared me not guilty. He's adopted me into his family. He has forever justified me, that is, acquitted me of my sin, and he's ever counted me righteous because of Jesus' sinlessness that has been imputed or credited to me. And so in the gospel, we can know that we have peace with God. There's no other religious system, no other philosophical system in which you can ever know that you're at peace with God. But in the gospel, you can know it because it's a gift that God gives to us. All relies upon him. I just receive it by faith. I trust in Him and what He did for me. And so the Bible says in 1 John 5 that these things have been written unto you who believe on the name of the Son of God, verse 13, that you may know that you have eternal life. And so I know I have eternal life. I know that God always holds me, is always for me, and nothing is ever going to disrupt that standing that I have with Him. And if you get that foundation right, that will be the basis for dealing with anything this life throws at you. And you'll notice in this text, Paul goes on to say that, yes, while we have this peace with God, we still have troubles. We still have stresses. And so he goes on to say in verse 3, not only so do we have this, uh, this new standing and we stand in grace, we're secure, but he says we also glory in our sufferings. A very strange phrase, rejoice in our stresses is how we could think about it. Why do we rejoice in them? Because we know that through them, this God who now holds us securely is in the process of making us awesome, changing us to become like Jesus Christ in eternal glory as we prepare for that new heaven and new earth. And so in that first message, one central thing that we establish is that we must not do this. We must not seek ever to sinfully short-circuit or foolishly seek to short-circuit the stress are the sources of stress in our lives. Now, that's the first thing. This morning, as we look at these symbolic events, the stones by the water, the elements on the table, we're reminded next that to handle stress, that after resting in my salvation, that I have peace with God and I stand in the grace of God. And after understanding all of the stresses God gives to me, right, I can glory in them, give God thanks for them, rejoice in them because I know He is working awesome things through them to, 
to make me awesome to become like Jesus, then the next little building block today after that is that then we must be people who really focus our minds more deeply on what that means and our relationship with God and who He is. As we read this morning in our call to worship in Isaiah 26, you, Yahweh, God, will keep him in perfect peace whose mind is stayed, fixed, focused on you because he trusts in you. It's not just some empty focus upon God, but it is a thinking focus, a spiritually thinking mind focusing upon who God is and how he's revealed himself to us. And that becomes the next building block for me when stress comes in upon me of how I'm going to begin to deal with it. I revisit the fact that, you know, God has me. I have peace with God. I stand in His grace. I can rejoice in what I'm going through right now and at some level because I know that, that if I'm His, He is working awesomeness in this and through this in my life, but then focusing next our minds. And so early on in the process of dealing with stress, And through whatever is stressful in our lives, we need to begin to act within our spiritual minds. I have something to say about that in the second point today, but before we talk about that matter of mind and focus, I want to point out some wrong things people think about processing stress. And this is the beginning of where you and I, as followers of Jesus, must diverge from the culture at large in dealing with stress. You know, I know you talk to people about stress at work. Stress with your neighbors, right, things you go through as you talk to people, at the why, wherever you may be. But you as, and I as followers of Jesus, we must be people who think, talk, and act differently in relationship to stress. Hillary Clinton is a professing Methodist to the far left of Methodism. But Hillary Clinton to us and what she says should begin to sound more and more like an alien because what she is saying is alien to the gospel and I don't think she even realizes that but as people who are followers of Jesus that whole mindset in our culture should begin to be something that just really sounds weird to me because I have a unique Christian perspective on how I'm to deal with stress bothersome to me that she's thinking about wanting to be ordained in the Methodist church. So I'm not trying to beat up on Hillary. I pity where she is in her mind. I wish she would read Thomas Oden, who was where she once was as a Methodist and became an evangelical before he died. But nevertheless, first of all, let's talk about some bad steps. Sometimes when stress comes into our lives, especially stress that becomes ongoing, Our inclination, like that of the general culture, is to just assume that this is bad for us and that we need to do something to alleviate it as quickly as we can. And so in the general culture, people seek to mute or tamp down or deal with stress through alcohol or drugs. Hillary says, had her fair share of Chardonnay. Or they may withdraw into themselves and put up their defenses to seek to wall off the sources of stress if it is people-related. Other people seek to ignore the source of stress, or they find ways to run from it. They begin to practice avoidance with stress. That is, when the creditors begin calling about the, the credit card bill that you ran up because you were shopping to deal with your stress, 
You accumulated all of this. And people shop more and more and more. They throw away the bills or they lie to their loved ones about what is going on. About why they're acting differently in relationship to it. It's avoidance. Or some people will seek to solve the source of stress by sinfully turning to another person for comfort. This is where in pastoring 30 years I found a lot of of, uh, affairs start. There's stress in the marriage and it's difficult. And you begin to try to find a way to alleviate the stress by looking to somebody else that you begin to talk to of the opposite sex. You begin to hear out your problems. Or a group of people. Sometimes I see this happen particularly. You know, men usually single in on some other woman that they find they begin to confide in. Women, a lot of times, and I'm speaking in broad brush general terms, don't always fall out this way, but this is what I see as a pastor sometimes. Women begin to talk to other women who may have also had unhealthy relationships, who may have cast off their relationships and moved on, and they begin to get pulled into that mentality and begin to go places they shouldn't be going and taking advice they shouldn't be taking, and they end up themselves involved with someone else, growing up out of finding a substitute for their mate in relationship to their stress. Some may turn to alternate spiritualities, as Hillary is doing that put them in touch with ideas and powers that are not from God and can become harmful in time and destructive in eternity. Some people, as first order, they seek legal drugs, medication for the stress. And you know, there is a great spike right now with uh, millennials in relationship to this, with researchers telling us that anxiety among young people, millennials, is at an 80-year high. Millennials are known now as the anxious generation, and there's growing abuse of them, uh, of anxiety medicines by them, doctor shopping for things like Ativan or Xanax or Adderall, and certainly we must see all of this as partly connected to the opioid crisis in our culture. And I'm not saying that there is never a cause for medication. I am saying at the high levels of where medications are being used, both outside and inside the church, we're off the rails of what we ought to be in dealing with life. And the Christian message is an alternative message to say there are resources, if you'll take time to investigate them in the 2,000-year history of the church of dealing with issues of stress and problems in life, if we'll really look into it. So I'm not saying there's not a time for medicine, but... That should be a last resort, not a first resort after careful examination. And I think any good professional doctor or counselor would agree with that. Medicine may be a first resort in certain traumas for a short-term care in relationship to... I'm not trying to make this a counseling session, but I am having to deal with some of these things. For certain traumas that hit us all of a sudden that are overwhelming. And a medical doctor may rightly prescribe that, you know, for you. I remember... When I was pastoring in North Alabama, I was young in my late 20s, and I got a call to come to the local hospital, and I got there, and there was a family there that um, their two daughters had left school that afternoon, got in a car with a young man, and he had driven at a high speed, flipped the car. One of the girls had died at the scene. Uh, The boy was in serious condition in the emergency room, and the other daughter, she was there with a lacerated liver other internal injuries, and they're out in the waiting room waiting, praying that she would survive until the doctor came out, and I could tell by his face when he came out the door, she had died. And right there in one fell swoop, both of their daughters were gone in one afternoon. Uh, 
And I can understand in that type of stress, someone being given something to help them short-term deal with just the, the shock to the system in that way. But, but on the whole, we need to begin to think about where we're out of bounds and, and so quickly turning to these things in our culture. And you see, I think sometimes, like the general culture, because professing Christians have become creatures of culture, we live under the pressure of culture, the the messages we get are overwhelming from the culture, from all the pop aspects of culture that make us think this is how people in our culture handle things. I think that even professing Christians begin to resort to the same things of culture because they believe stress means something is automatically wrong when situations become stressful. And that this is not something that I should have to face because God intends for me to be happy. And if you think that Christianity is about God wanting you to be happy, you have misunderstood Christianity. God wants us to be ultimately joyful. But God's goal is not that you and I be happy. God's goal is that you and I become like Jesus, Christ-like. This idea that God intends for me to be happy, this is the lie that has become deeply ingrained in our culture. And it is promoted in, uh, spiritually in everything from the New Age movement to prosperity theology to the self-help movement. It's reflected in universities moving to curtail free speech, to offering students safe spaces when they feel stress. We ought not to have to feel stress. That's the message. But listen, while stress is part of living in a real world that is a fallen world, and we are real people, yet fallen people living in it, you and I as followers of Jesus must not see stress as something that is wrong in itself. Or that when I have stress and a problem from, uh, uh, stress from a problem, that it means something has gone really, really wrong in my life or in God's plan for my life. You see what I'm trying to say? We think that we're to be happy. I'm under stress. The world's answer is to do what? Mute it, dampen it down, escape from it, right? Get involved with somebody else. Whatever you have to do, because you ought to be happy. And people begin to deal with stress in bad ways. I want us to begin to see that we as Christians must divorce our mind from how the world thinks about that. Obviously, the nation of Israel had just gone through a long season of stress when they crossed the Jordan. Recall, they came out of the promised land. God gave them the commandments. They said, yay, God, we'll obey you all the time, and they did it. It was wonderful, wasn't it? Just, no, they didn't. They disobeyed God. And for 40 years, they wondered till that whole generation died out in the wilderness. Some of the stress they faced have been related to their sin. Read through the, through the book of Exodus and uh, in Deuteronomy. You can see some of the stress they related. But now they're crossing into the promised land. And when they get into the promised land, they're about to have more stress. Taking the promised land, that means the land of promise. When you hear promised land, this is the land God promised to Abraham and his descendants. And it still belongs to them to this day. Regardless of what the world says. So they're about to take that land. Yet it was all part of God's plan, with all the stress they've been through, for God to rescue them from Egypt to bring them through the wilderness and to give them this new territory. 
And furthermore, when we see Jesus praying in the garden, Jesus is in great stress, is he not? His sweat is turning to drops of blood. Yet Jesus is perfect. He is sinless. There is no sin in him that has brought him to this point. And he's under stress because of the ominous fact that he's about to become sin for us, that is the bearer of our sin. But listen, all of this was God's perfect plan for the Son and for God to work through the Son to save us. And this is not to say that we are prohibited from seeking to deal with the source of stress in a godly way. I mean, Jesus prayed in the garden if this cup could, what, pass from him? Paul prayed, as we saw last time, he had that thorn in his flesh, and he prayed. And we'll talk in this series about the role of prayer and confession in rightly dealing with the sources of stress in our lives. Not to say that we we cannot rightly try to deal with things. And we'll look at those things. But what Paul did not do, and what Jesus did not do, was sinfully seek to alleviate stress, or as a matter of first course, to wilt or to withdraw, or to think somehow God could not mean for them to be going through this, nor did they think something was out of sync with the universe and go to some alternate spirituality in which they look inward to try to bring things back into line with the source of ultimate power. That's what Hillary Clinton, even though she may not know it, this alternate breathing of the nostril is just a practice of yoga. And I don't know if she even thinks about the worldview of it, But that whole worldview is the idea that I'm part of the universe and all the problems that I face are just an illusion. Evil is an illusion. And I have to get in the right place with my energy sources so that I can kind of transcend that stuff and get back into sync with the universal, this universal mind or this impersonal God. But you see, that is an escapist worldview. That I'm just trying to deal with these things so that I can go around these things because they're really not real ultimately. But you see, we know that these things are real. This is a fallen world. We're going to have stresses. But our understanding is that our God is a personal God, He's created us in His image. When we trust in Christ, we're at peace with Him. We stand in this grace from then on. And all of the stresses and problems of life, I can rejoice in them, knowing that He will never let me go. And so I don't have to escape from things, run from things, tamp things down in a sinful, destructive way, seek some alternative spirituality. I can begin to deal with it the way God wants me to deal with it. And how do we do that? Well, again, we don't short-circuit it, handle it wrongly, as we just said. But we do what I want to talk about centrally today, quickly, before we come to the table. So when we begin to put together a Christian response to stress, what's then the next step we must take? So you're following me? We're at peace with God. We stand in His grace. We rejoice in our tribulations because God is doing something awesome in them. I choose as a Christian not to handle things wrongly the way the world handles them. And I begin to think differently than how the world thinks about my stresses and my problems. I don't just buy into what culture says. 
And I don't seek to handle things the way culture says to handle them. My first recourse is to the Word of God. This living God who indwells me by His Spirit. And He has resources to help me. So what does He tell us to do? Well, we begin to put together then this next thing of fixing or fastening our minds on the Lord. We begin to think spiritually about the matter. And we see in Jesus' prayer and in these symbols what that entails. And so Jesus is praying in the garden, Lord, if there be any other way, please take this what? Cup from me. That's a spiritual way of handling it in the right way. But then what did Jesus say? Nevertheless, say it with me, not my will, but thy will be done. Nevertheless, not my will, but thy will be done. You see, what Jesus was committed to was this. He was committed to obedience and to trust. And the point is that our early moves in dealing with stress, particularly if it's long-term types of stress, long-term job stress, dealing with a a sick parent, your own health deteriorating, dealing with a prodigal child, dealing with just uh, rough things at work and just life in general, a stressful marriage. I must come to the point of saying that in my early moves with stress that I affirm my trust in God's faithfulness and His goodness and trustworthiness no matter how I got to where I am, And we affirm our commitment to obey Him. That from that point on, I'm going to handle the source of stress within the parameters of His will. So that I don't mess it up worse. Which a lot of people do when they try to handle it the way culture handles it. And so fixing our minds means that we affirm our trust in Him because He is faithful. And we affirm our desire to walk in obedience at that point. And so when the Israelites enter the promised land. They crossed over and they set up this uh, monument of rocks, a national monument. That's not really it. It's not there anymore. It was there when the text was written. We don't really know what it looked like, how big the rocks were. But when they entered the promised land, the text says they can now go back to this national monument with their children. We say, what does this mean? And they could say to their children, no matter what we're going through now, that we're in the promised land. Stress, war, the difficulties they were facing. That our God has always been faithful. Beginning at the Red Sea, remember the writer Joshua alludes to the fact that these stones remind us the point when God brought us through the Red Sea and He split it open. To the point when God brought us into the promised land and He split open the River Jordan. These stones remind us that from beginning to end in our journey, from God claiming us as His children in salvation in the Exodus, until He gets us to the promised land, this God is a God who is faithful. He is a covenant God. And He'll always be faithful with us, no matter what our trials, whatever our stresses. And because He is faithful, He will always work this for our good. And even in the midst of my stresses and my problems, there's good taking place in the midst of it. You may be in here this morning and you think everything has just collapsed and fallen in. And you're discouraged. And there's no hope. And you're in a dark place. 
Where is God? God is right there with you. He has not let you go if you're his child. And he's working right now in the darkest place in your life. He's at work. And further, when we think about the Lord Jesus praying in the garden in that darkest place, and it's going to get darker as he goes to the cross. Remember the the eclipse that takes place, the darkness that falls, the cry of dereliction, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me, right? That God is doing his greatest work in all of human history right there in that darkest moment. And when we look now at the table, the bread, his body, the juice, his blood, we're reminded that Jesus went through the greatest of stress And it was part of God's perfect plan. He trusted fully the faithfulness of the Father, and he found strength for what the Father had willed for him to continue a walk of obedience. And now, because Jesus is God, he has left behind this memorial to say to us that I will be faithful to you as well. You say, I show you my faithfulness, and it's been written in my blood and in my body being broken for you. It is a message that I will save you and give you eternal life and I will keep you and I will get you to where I want you to go. So no matter what your stress is today, he is the Lord of stress. He is the Lord of problems. And the table is its own illustration for us today. I don't need to tell you a story. This is the story. The story is that that the Lord is faithful. Someone has said that the greatest enemy of faith is forgetfulness. And the Lord knew that, so he gave us this memorial. And so today as we come to this table, make this your time to look to Jesus. No matter what you're facing, even if your sin has gotten to where you are today, make the commitment right now to deal with it as God wants you to deal with it. If you've imbibed in some things in the world and you're in a dangerous place and you're trying to drown your sorrows, drug your sorrows, do some illicit drugs, or you're poying being involved with somebody else because of these problems, stresses over here, or you're putting up walls and you're avoiding people and community and responsibility and accountability, you're doing alternate nostril breathing, trying to align yourself with the powers of the universe, I'm already aligned with the true God who saved me. Trying to say these things are really an illusion, I'm really a God, and I just got to line things back up to remember I'm a God. Would you today bury that garbage and say, I want to begin to handle the problems and the stresses in the way God would have me to, and say, Lord Jesus, from this point, I want to seek to handle these things in obedience to you, biblically, and I'm going to trust you. It may not be easy. Maybe some tough things I have to deal with. The stress may even get stronger early on. But I'm going to trust you because you've shown yourself faithful. You will keep showing yourself faithful so that I can follow you till you get me home. 
As we come to the table now, if you're a person who has trusted Christ and been baptized biblically by immersion, and you're not a member of our church, but you feel free in your conscience to participate, we invite you to. I know we have some of our children in here today who have become believers and have been baptized. Some perhaps are taking of the first time with the first Lord's Supper. We welcome you guys. We're glad that you're here. And so we just um, pray now the Lord prepare our hearts to come to this uh, table and just to be reminded again of some of the things that um, we've talked about today. Father, thank you now for these elements that, Lord, speak loudly to us of the faithfulness of our Savior, the faithfulness of our God, to save us and keep us in your grace, to transform us, to make us like Jesus. God, help us today to look at these elements. And Lord, no matter where we are right now in our problems, to first of all make sure we've trusted Jesus so that we're at peace with God, if not to call upon you even now to be our Savior. And then, Lord, to fix our minds upon you, the one who is faithful, showing that to us in this symbol. And, Lord, to make the commitment that, Lord, from this point on we will seek, Lord, to begin to understand and handle our lives the way you want us to for your glory. We pray this in Jesus' name.